You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. I cannot believe this next guest. And this is the direction the podcast has been going to be more story-driven. But this next guest, he started the band Shanana. Now, if you're younger, you might not have heard about them, but Shanana was a hugely popular rock and roll band. They opened for Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock. Bruce Springsteen, when he was young, opened for Shanana. Uh, they traveled and toured with the Grateful Dead, with Janis Joplin, with others. They were one of the biggest bands on the planet. And then uh, they even had one of the most popular TV shows from 1977 to 1981. I watched it every week. It was called Shanana, and the band would have guests and play music and so on. Anyway, this next guest, Robert Leonard, he started the band with the help of his friend Jimi Hendrix. And then he quit and became one of the leading forensic linguists on the planet. Now, he'll, I'll let him describe what forensic linguistics is, but he's basically involved in murder cases like John Benet Ramsey and the Unabomber and, and all sorts of other cases that are fascinating. And, and how he helps solve these cases is just amazing. But also, I really love that he made this kind of transition from being a huge rock star to being the most prominent forensic linguist on the planet so and he's got such amazing stories to tell i'll let him tell them here's robert leonard robert first you got to tell me you've gone from the group shanana which i loved as a kid i can't believe i'm talking to you <laughs> to being involved in forensic linguistics which i don't even know what that is and you you worked on the John Benet Ramsey case. You've worked on all sorts of cases. It's an incredible. I love stories of transition. I think it's particularly important now, as so many people are going through their own transitions amidst this pandemic and you know strange kind of economy. But first, Shanana, what the hell well, happened? How did you guys start? I mean, I know, but explain to the listeners. If you like transitions, you come to the right place because I know I've really gone through so many transitions that are so wildly different and no one could ever be more astonished than I was. I mean, you were, you, Sean and I was almost like you put on the act, you, you normalized kind of the gang drug, uh, rock and roll. You made it kind of, uh, salient for kids. You had the TV show, Sean and I, uh, and, but meanwhile, Sean and I got started in part because of your buddy, Jimi Hendrix. That's right, yeah. And it was really invented by my brother who also went to Columbia. This this starts actually in Columbia University where- Of um, course. I was in, yeah, I was in what's now would be an acapella group. I was the leader and we, we didn't do a lot. I mean, we would 
go across the street and play in the in the psychiatric ward at uh, St. Luke's Hospital, and we'd go to all female schools, and that's about what we did. I mean, we didn't take ourselves very seriously, and we didn't have a lot of numbers uh, prepared. So when somebody actually said that they were going to have a record producer come and listen to us, we had to get all these new songs. And at that point in uh, 1969, uh, rock and roll was not exactly filled with beautiful harmonies. And uh, you can probably hear I'm a second bass. But we loved the songs of our older brothers, uh, the doo-wop. And we used to sing them as we'd leave rehearsal, uh, literally under the streetlights of Broadway. And um, we knew all these songs and we knew all the harmonies. So we said, oh, let's do that. So we sang 50 songs. Now, this was the first time anybody was singing 50 songs in what then was a long time. And everybody went crazy. And then my brother, George Leonard, uh, who goes on to be a fabulous novelist, screenwriter for Ron Howard and everything else. And now he's a grad student. And he says, I have an idea. Call the boys to your apartment. I said, um, really? Yes. I said, OK. So I call the boys to my apartment. And then my brother says, boys. And he points at everybody's face and he says, boys, I'm going to make you rock and roll stars. So you can imagine everybody signed right up. No, of course not. Nobody believed him. Uh, we said, what are you, crazy? And he says, listen, listen, you saw the reaction. I went around to the fraternities and had them grease up and everything. This is a brand new idea. We're going to revitalize the 50 songs. And he then choreographed us, uh, addressed us in, you know, the faux uh, hood. I wore a gold lame suit like Elvis Presley. And he had us doing all this fabulous dance routines, again, totally opposite of what was going on in rock and roll at the time. And we played at Columbia and people were just tearing the walls apart. They couldn't believe it. That summer, we went around to all the nightclubs in New York saying, hey, are you interested in our act? And they said, what are you, out of your mind? What, 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 just out of curiosity, what clubs in New York did you go to? Like what existed back then? That's a good question, because most of the ones that I'm remembering are ones that we played in later. But we hit pay dirt on Steve Paul's The Scene, which was the most inside nightclub in all of New York City. Matter of fact, it's so inside that I don't even think it has a Wikipedia page. It made Studio 54 look like, I don't know, a Walmart or something. <laughs> um, it was subterranean. Uh, I think it was 47th Street. West of 8th Avenue, it was under a house of ill repute in the basement. Yeah, because west of 47th Street, uh, you know, uh, west of 8th Avenue on 47th Street, that was Hell's Kitchen. That was a pretty bad area right there. It was a very, very bad area. And it was all porno and really rough, nasty porno shops and prostitutes lining the streets. Um, it, it, was, it was real New York, right? So, um, and underneath here was Steve Paul scene, half owned by Andy Warhol, who understood and really appreciated what avant-garde meant. And they loved us. And they said, yeah, sure, come uh, play tonight. I mean, bands would pay to play there because there you were going to see Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and everybody else who, when they didn't have a gig, they would come and play there. They would uh, jam and they would hang out. 
So people didn't have these entourages like they do now. So we became just about the house band and the Village Voice, which was a big uh, newspaper at the time, really broke the story of us. They loved us. People started flocking to us. And I had the death songs. Uh, Tell Laura I love her teen angel where, uh, you know, the teenage romance ends with death. And is that that song, Teen Angel, is that what I'm thinking of? Is that the popular song, Teen Angel? Yeah, um, that fateful night the car was stalled upon the railroad track. I pulled. That's out. a great song. Yeah, and we were saved, but you went running back. So what was it you were looking for that took your life that night? They said they found my high school ring clutched in your fingers tight. So did you Teen guys angel. write that or was that a cover? Oh, no, it was a cover. All oh, okay. of our songs at that point in time were very decidedly and on purpose covered because we were trying to recreate what people remembered about the 50s. And we were a, an acapella group. So we had 12 guys doing four and five part harmony, which, you know, they didn't then. And, and we played it the way people remembered it. Everybody said, oh, that's exactly. No, it wasn't because I played it straight. I played it from the heart. As, and then in the middle of it, I cry. They buried you today. Whereas if you listen to the original one, it was, they buried you today, you know? So we, it was a show. It was a musical. It was vaudeville. Each of these songs was a different plot. Each song had a different um, narrator, a different um, front man. So one day, one night, I go, Teen Angel, answer me. And I go to my knees, please. And I look up, and there, not six feet away, is Jimi Hendrix jumping up and down on a chair. You know, it's a very small place. It's about as big as a normal uh, living room, I think, in a, in a big house. And he's going, yeah, right, yes. And he came over and he pumped my hand and we drank that night. I mean, Jimi Hendrix taught me how to drink tequila with the, the lime and the salt, you know? And When you describe it that way, I'm sorry to interrupt, when you describe it that way, that's kind of how, I, I mean, I'm not a drinker, but that's kind of how everybody drinks tequila. You sound very like a Columbia student being taught how to drink by Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> I was 19, um, I think. And uh, what do I know? Uh, God almighty. And um, I, I wasn't used to drinking in bars. And Were, were you in awe of Jim? Was Jimmy, I mean, Woodstock hadn't happened yet, right? So were you in awe of Jimi Hendrix? Were people, had people realized this is like the greatest guitar player ever? Absolutely. And the about the only person I knew I'd never been to a rock concert until I performed at a rock concert. I, I was in love with soul music. And we would go down to uh, 125th Street to the Apollo Theater and see all those fabulous harmony groups. And I didn't know anything about rock and roll except the 50s stuff. But I knew Jimi Hendrix, uh, you know, Hey Joe and, and all of those. Uh, fabulous, fabulous and the greatest guitarist in the world. And, and what, what was he like in person? Because, again, I think he was an enigmatic sort of character. Like, I don't know anybody else, actually, who's hung out with him. I just know, like, stuff from his biography and things like that. Like, what was he like just hanging out with him? Yeah, and, and actually, that was the story I was about to tell, that we were drinking and talking about everything, and he's telling me, he was like my guide to the rock and roll world. You know, it was, hey, little brother, listen to this, right? This is how it works, and this is what to do. And I was very reluctant to become, I mean, 
I, actually, I had wanted to go to Europe that uh, summer with my girlfriend. I didn't want to hang around and, and beat doors to uh, clubs that didn't want us. So uh, we go into the men's room and this guy follows us in and he pulls a camera out from under his coat and he tries to sell it to Jimmy. And Jimmy says, what are you doing, man? Come on, brother. That's, that's hot, right? Well, I mean, just 20 bucks is all. Now, listen, listen, here's 20 bucks. Now, go take that camera and put it back wherever you found it. Because otherwise, man, you're going to wind up in jail. Your kids aren't going to have a father. Take the $20 and get out of here. And he did. Mm. It was just the nicest guy in the world. And it turned out that our guitarist, Henry Gross, in Brooklyn, used to play with Jimmy before he was Jimi Hendrix and went off to Vietnam. And, uh, and it was just... Boy, it was amazing, but he was just the nicest guy in the world. And one of my fondest scenes in the whole world is in the Woodstock movie director's cut. They have of me doing Teen Angel, although rather off key, having spent the whole night on the stage. Um, and as I'm singing, there's a there's Jimmy nodding, smiling, watching me because he was he went on right after us. So would you you open for Jimi Hendrix at, at Woodstock? That's right. We played before him. Uh, and see, it was so late. We were, everybody was behind, you know, it was, it was a mess, that place. And they said to Jimmy, look, Jimmy, you want to go on now? And he said, no, there are groups that haven't gone on. Sean and I hasn't gone on. And he waited for us to go on. And then he went on because he was supposed to go on like midnight and he went on at seven or eight or nine in the morning. Wow. Um, yeah. So that was, uh, that was pretty amazing. Among your other amazing stories, Bruce Springsteen opened for you guys, right? When he was just starting out. Yeah, a lot of people <laughs> opened for us. <laughs> I know it's just amazing when I look at some of the uh, sets to see uh, who opened for us, you know, Santana, uh, stuff like that. Like, what was Bruce Springsteen like? Well, he was a little kid. I never, I never met Springsteen that I can remember. But, you know, as they say, uh, if you were in the 60s, you don't remember the 60s. But that's... I I didn't take drugs. Um, I had had an experience that ruined me forever and ever, which was very lucky for me because as I moved through my life, I was in areas where everybody I knew was dying of drug overdoses. And I, I studied in Bangkok uh, after I leaving Africa, which is all other transitional story. And I was very lucky about that. What, what was your bad experience with drugs? It was just a bad experience with drugs, and uh, it, it it made me absolutely uh, never want to go near any drugs. Alcohol, okay, but uh, not drugs. And, you know, one of the reasons I got out of Shanana was we were at the pinnacle of our success, and everybody I knew started dying of drug overdoses. I used to sit at the Fillmore West in, uh, in San Francisco backstage with Janis Joplin and she would hang out and we would talk and she would complain to me about the lack of male groupies. I said, I, I don't exactly know how to answer uh, what to say about that, Janice. And I always drank her wine. And that was because at the Fillmore West, it was like a big gymnasium. Literally, it was. And 
people would open a bottle of wine and put PCP in it and drink it and pass it along. And these bottles would go throughout the entire audience and everybody would put more and more drugs in it. So I was petrified of that. I didn't know what the hell I'd be drinking. So I didn't. I only drank Janice's wine because she didn't take drugs like me. And why I didn't just buy a bottle of my own wine, I don't know. But um, it was a lot of fun hanging out with Janice. And of course, then Janice dies of an overdose of drugs. Yeah. How did she get? How do you think? Were you around her when she got started, uh, you know, using heroin and other drugs? None of the people that I knew who knew her pretty well. And we played with her just a couple of months before she died uh, in Calgary, Canada, on the what was called the um, Festival Express, the Canadian Woodstock train. Um knew that she was, but you see, like at that Calgary show, she sang one of the best performances I ever saw of hers. This is in this video, the Festival Express. And we were there, the dead and everybody. And there was this rot gut tequila floating around in the uh, backstage area and in the hotel, the party. And I could barely drink it. And we used to, we used to drink a lot of really bad (laughs) tequila, but Janice got up and cracked the bottle of a, of a fifth of this tequila and drank the entire bottle straight during the uh, downtimes in her set. So that was in around five minutes, maybe, or six minutes that she wasn't actually singing. And it didn't affect her pitch at all, mm. which so suggests- she had a really high tolerance for this sort exactly. of stuff. Yeah. So maybe she had maxed out her ability to get anything out of alcohol, and she probably needed a ton of alcohol just to be normal. I mean, I'm no uh, uh, expert on this, but that's how it seems uh, to a lot of people. So she had to go to the next level up, unfortunately. Now, let me ask, and this is going to segue into something else, but Janis Joplin was an amazing musician, and she was also incredibly beautiful. And here you were hanging out with her, friends with her. Did you ever make a move on her? Nope. Fair enough. And, you know, a lot, you know, the saying, the 60s was about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. She really exemplified that. And, and as the Jimi Hendrix and you guys did not, I feel like Shanana is a very seventies phenomenon where the seventies and media in the seventies kind of normalized the sixties movement and made it uh, family friendly. And I feel Shanana was part of that trend. Well, I'm glad we escaped scrutiny then. Uh, for... <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, Actually, very unfortunately, our own lead guitarist died of an overdose of heroin um, Mm. after I left. Um, But I think one of the reasons you get that impression is because, I mean, I've read history books that credit us with starting punk rock. Really? Yeah. um, Where we didn't, uh, uh, Sid Vicious is quoted in some biography of him saying, wait a minute, I can't talk now. Shanana's on TV. They're, They're me favorite. Oh my God, I got to look that up. But when the TV show came around and I was out of the group already, I had decided to give it up. I reluctantly went back to Columbia. I reluctantly left the group, which I had reluctantly joined because Columbia offered me a full fellowship, a free ride, no teaching, stipends, living expenses, no tuition, 
all the way to the PhD. And so, so let me ask about that because I think this is a big transition for you. I understand they gave you a free scholarship, but you, you were in Shana and I, you, you know, you guys were about to do one of the most watched TV shows of all time. Yeah. And did, what was the decision like? Like, were, were you, did you ever regret it? Was, were you really torn or were you just. I regretted that- it all the time. And I was torn all the time. I loved the guys in the group. I loved being in the group. I loved all sorts of things about the group. Plus there's the promise of money. You guys were already like a world famous band and everyone was on the verge. You know, music was changing. Everybody was on the verge of making, you know, a huge amount of money. And we were uh, amazingly already in the top 25. I remember Billboard saying, I think, uh, a top 25 paid groups. Not that we were paid a lot in uh, those dollars, but in these dollars we were. I said to myself, I have two divergent paths now. I can either stay in Shanana and certainly never get my doctorate in linguistics, or I can leave Shanana and go to Columbia graduate school. I, I was a student the entire time I was in Shanana. And I said, I'm never going to be able to come back to that node and make that decision. So very reluctantly, I said, let me throw in with the PhD. And I left. But it was made easier, if that's the word, because everybody I knew was dying. I mean, mm. you you know a lot about show business, and you know show business ain't what it's cracked up to be. And there's it's a lot of terrible things that happen in show business. And there are these ugly, awful experiences of, of people that you really, really adore dying. And there was so much excess of drugs and drinking and, yeah, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, people were dying all over the place. So that helped me move. But now, you know, the Shanana, the band continued, obviously, and had so many great highlights, like one of the most watched shows of all time. It was a syndicated kind of feature show, uh, I guess, from in the late 70s to to early 80s. You guys were, Shanana was in the movie Grease. Well, Greece, Greece was a movie about us, you understand. I mean, they got all that from us. Even the word Greece was not used the way they do in the Greece Broadway show and movie until us, until my brother decided to call our second Columbia concert Greece Under the Stars the glo- or the, and the glory that was Greece. It, it comes from a, a poem, the, the glory that was Greece, the, the grandeur that was Rome. And... Um, so that's why we used Grease and Greaser. That was not the term for guys like us. It was hoods. And that's what I mean. Like even Grease, the movie sort of normalized. Yes, yes. Hoods. Yes, <laughs> So absolutely. you weren't you were gangsters with the leather jackets doing drugs. You were singing nice songs. These, these historians explain that we invented the 50s as opposed to, let's say, the 1950s. The 1950s huh. was a terrible time. There was McCarthyism. There was just all sorts of horrendous things happening. But we invented a make-believe version, a pre-1968, when the world blew up uh, because of the Vietnam War. Uh, Columbia students took over the school and occupied all the buildings and uh, with with guns, kept the, the dean hostage for days. I mean... And, and people, you think people were at each other's throats now? 
then every male over 18, every single male had a target on his back and could, in the blink of an eye, dematerialize and rematerialize in a rice paddy in Vietnam. About 25 of the guys that I went to high school with died in Vietnam and for what? So this was a way of healing, for example, the Columbia campus who were just at each other's throats because they could look back to this make-believe world of the 50s when everything was cool. Of course, it wasn't, but at least it wasn't the same problems. And again, that's what historians say we did. And that was what my brother tried to do. It's so interesting you, you say that because it also, and I would say you reinvented the 50s and the 60s in the sense that oh, yeah, yeah. You, you were oh, rock sure. and roll, but family friendly. You know, uh, like it wasn't like, you know, Jimi Hendrix was going to do a family TV show at 8 p.m. But, on a Friday point, night. Well, the TV show, of course, appealed on two levels because the parents, they remembered the songs because they were older than us and they sure. grew up with them, see? And then the little kids, what, what did they know? Uh, they just saw us doing all this broad comedy with Groucho Marx and everything. But I wasn't in the TV show. By the time the TV show came around, I had gotten a Fulbright fellowship to do my doctoral dissertation research in East Africa. And I was in East Africa studying the northern dialects of Swahili up by the Mali coast. So, so at that time, though, like, did you ever say, hey, can I just be on an episode or two of the show? Can I be in Greece? <laughs> did you ever like kind of ask, I guess your brother was still involved. You ever kind of say, hey, can I just hang out a little bit and maybe sing some songs? My brother wasn't involved anymore. As a matter of fact, he just put us in, uh, he put us into motion. He choreographed 30 or 40 of our songs. And then he went off with his girlfriend to, uh, to Europe someplace. And I had to handle Woodstock all by myself without my brother helping. God, there's so much reluctance. <laughs> I get, really, at every turn, I never, uh, I can admit, had the courage to say, oh, that's fine, I'll do it. And how we got to Woodstock, just to go back to that node, okay, I go back to our uh, dressing room it, at the scene, and this is about as big as the coffee table in front of me, and there is this super stoned hippie right out of central casting, long hair and, and uh, pinwheels for eyes, and he's giving me a peace sign, and he's saying, you guys, you guys you guys. And I said, Oh yeah, man, thanks. Oh, it's really nice here. And I took him and I started to walk him out and just about to push him out the door. Our uh, manager, who is my brother's buddy from Columbia, wonderful guy named Ed Goodgold, sort of gets in our way and we all jump, fall down on the floor. And Ed gets up and he picks up this stoned hippie and he's like brushing him off. And the hippie, like nothing happened. He just flashes the sign again and says, you guys have to be at Woodstock. And I said to Ed, what's Woodstock? He says, I guess we'll find out. And I had almost thrown out Mike Lang, one of the principals of Woodstock. And he had come because Jimi Hendrix, we are told, recommended, hey, go to the scene and see these guys. They have to be at Woodstock. So it was a good thing that Ed stopped me because that night, Organized crime closed the scene forever with tear gas 
and attacks and uh, our uh, our guitarist, 80 year old grandmother was there. My parents were there. My father in his jacket and tie uh, in this den of iniquity. It's really interesting. Two more questions. Then I want to get to the forensic linguistic sure. stuff, which I'm actually more interested in. But, you know, you guys had a very far reaching effect. Like I was reading how this rebel and then later, I think, president of East Timor named himself Shanana. Really? Because of you guys. I didn't know that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, sh- sh- his name's Shanana <laughs> Gusmeo, and he, is, he spells it X-A-N-A-N-A, and so he named good. himself after Shanana. <laughs> it could be him and Sid Vicious, right? Real real fans. Well, he, he said he said that the name comes from, he pronounces Shanana, and he says it comes from the American That's great. Group. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, man, I would love to see uh, anything with that in it. That's That's really... Uh, okay. And then the other thing is when you went back to grad, you know, graduate school at Columbia and you're studying linguistics, did your fellow classmates know you had been, you know, one of the main singers of the group Shana now, were they all in awe of you? Were, you? were you like the stud of Columbia's campus? Well, it was interesting because I, when I was in the group, uh, by day, I was just a normal schmucky college student, but at night, playing with Jimi Hendrix and the Grateful Dead, dressed in gold lame, teen angel, and all that. That was really great. I, I tried to keep a lower profile when I was in grad school, but my professors all knew, and they were very protective of me because I was still in the group my first year of graduate school. And I would come in Monday morning to the head of the department's uh, class sit down and promptly fall asleep. I'd be, I'd have my overcoat and my suitcase. And he was great. Uh, every now and then he'd say to the guy next to me, uh, would someone wake up, Mr. Leonard, please? I'm coming to a very important point and I don't want him to miss it. They'd wake me up. I would listen to the very important point, make my notes and promptly fall back asleep. So that was, uh, I knew I couldn't do both. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, 
where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop. Really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You're one of the few people who really hit the the top of success in two entirely different fields. I mean, you're considered one of the best forensic linguists in the world. And you know, you 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 studied it for many years and you've been involved in so many different cases. But can you describe just what is a forensic linguist? Like I forensic means you studied death cases and you and you you've helped out everybody from the NYPD to the FBI to working on so many different, you know, famous cases, but I'm sure many other cases as well. But what does linguistics have to do with it? Sure. And and let me add to that, um, that I founded a forensic linguistics death penalty, capital case, um, innocence project at Hofstra, where I teach and where I have a graduate program, about the only face-to-face -face graduate program in the Western Hemisphere in forensic linguistics. And... Mm. Um, there, my graduate student interns, uh, supervised by me and other faculty and the law school, we reanalyze language evidence that put people on death row. 
And very often we find that this language evidence was improperly, unscientifically analyzed or is just false sometimes. Um, and we also help investigators. Uh, a year and a half ago, my interns and I helped investigators track a serial killer through the South. A woman was marrying and bumping off uh, serially um, veterans. And wow. staging Why was she doing that? Because she, she knew about veterans very well. So she would marry somebody, claim benefits for children that she did not have with the person, empty his bank account, and then stage a suicide one bullet to the head. And she had gotten away with it. And then another crime. We don't even know how many. We know one guy who got away. So we helped the investigators prove or the high likelihood that the first guy's um, suicide note had not been written by him, but had been written by her. Wow. And, and how, so, so, so that's what with, linguistics is. Linguistics is the scientific study of language. Most what, of what people know about language consciously, I mean, we all know unconsciously, uh, we're perfect uh, speakers of our native languages, but most of what we know consciously is from classes that are trying to get us to stop speaking normally and, and write uh, in uh, educated standard English, right? So, you know, you have a grammar class and it doesn't describe how people actually use language. It says what you should do if you want to follow the rules. And that's very useful. But linguists study actual, what's called authentic data, what actually comes out of people's mouths and keyboards. And one of the ways we do this is through something called uh, sociolinguistic research. And that was what I was doing in East Africa for years. And I also went to Bangkok and did it in Thai. And I did it in Detroit in English. And I did it in London in English. And I did it in Puerto Rico in Spanish, where we take actual real world samples of how people are actually using language. And over the years, over the decades, thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, samples have been collected like this from all over the world by sociolinguists. And we get an extremely good picture of how people really use language, what dialects are, what subdialects are. Every time you open your mouth or sit down at a keyboard, you are revealing so much information about yourself that you're not aware of. And a forensic linguist can analyze that and see perhaps what country you're from, where you have lived, what sports you watch. What really? Movie, absolutely. What movie? I mean, uh, if you use the term, oh, well, uh, you know, I, I, my shot clock was running out. Well, you show that you know basketball, but you could say that to a lot of people and they would have no idea what you're talking about. Native language, certainly, your occupation, your training, your education, your age. Boy, I'm, fa I'm fascinated. I wonder, I wonder like if, if you saw, like, let's say, the, let's say I'm the average person, like, and you saw my writing, would you really be able to determine lots of things about me other than that I am probably from the Northeast in the United States? Yes. Like what, like what, if you just saw a sample of my writing, what would you be, and I'm a professional writer, like what would you be able to determine, you think? Well, all of those things, for example. I mean, yeah. that you're a native English speaker. Uh, if you say, um, it depends on what is in the sample. See, in forensic, oh, so forensic, just before I'll answer that question in a sec, but forensic means 
I remember a detective I was trained in the NYPD uh, captain. He said, I don't know, Rob, uh, to me, forensic means a chalk outline of a body on the street. I said, I know, but it gets too complicated to say language applied to law. So forensic linguistics has come to mean any application of the science of linguistics, of scientific linguistic analysis to any issue of the law. So it could be the John Benning Ramsey case, as you've mentioned before. I was Apple's uh, linguist against both Microsoft and Amazon in their trademark battle on App Store. Right. So, so, so I read about that. There's like a, a scientific paper about that. And I don't quite understand, like, what were you looking for linguistically to show that Apple was, you know, first yeah. in their, in their yeah. trademark? Well, it was very clear that Apple invented the term app store. They had somebody else had, had, had started to say it and then said, no, you take it over. So app store didn't exist until, uh, until Apple and Microsoft and, um, and Amazon wanted to be able to use the term app store. And they said, no. And those guys said, well, it's generic. You see, you can't trademark a generic word. Like you and I could not start a salt company and trademark the word salt because that would exclude everybody else in the world who makes salt, okay, from using that term. So you have to have a certain kind of non-generic, and I won't get into the weeds on uh, (laughs) generic, descriptive, suggestive, et cetera. But I argued that actual data showed, among other things, that 85% of the people in my study, and I use various uh, corpuses, corpora we say, identified app store as an apple uh thing and not as the others and not as generic and they said well look app is generic store is generic but you put them together you have to take trademarks as a unit and they said look it's just like shoe store that's generic you can't have you know leonard's shoe store and not have anybody else use shoe store i said it isn't at all number one what do you do in a shoe store you buy something you don't buy anything in app store and you could buy a pair of shoes, go out on the street and resell it. Can't do that with App Store. It's, it's a metaphor for store. It's not bricks and mortar. Also, App was generic. Store was generic. But you put them together and you get a brand new concept. And this is how language works. Look at, you'll remember a couple of years back, the movement called Occupy Wall Street. Occupy, normal, everyday old word. Wall Street, normal phrase. But put them together, it's a brand new concept. And that's what I said was with App Store. And the judge agreed with me. He said it wasn't generic. Using linguistics, is someone's writing style and patterns, is that almost as unique as a fingerprint? Or how close is that metaphor to accurate? Right. So people sometimes try to explain it to non-linguists as sort of a fingerprint. But there's there's a lot of difference with a fingerprint. Because number one, your fingerprint doesn't change. Your personal dialect changes every five minutes. For example, I now know what the word squadcast is because I'm staring at it the entire time. So my own individual dialect will change. It changes over time, depending on who you talk to, who you talked to last week. And this is why it's so useful. We can track people through their language. So my mentor, Roger Shai, S-H-U-Y, um, from, uh, he was a professor at Georgetown, still uh, works with me as uh, my partner. Um, he was able to analyze the Unabomber's manifesto. And you remember, the Unabomber was this guy who for 14, 17 years kept bombing places. They couldn't catch him 
Uh, he was very, very clever and, and innovative. Uh, he would manufacture all his bomb things, so they couldn't even find this bomb device was bought in a place in Albuquerque. But so Roger looks at his 300. Uh, it was a, a long manifesto. I can't remember how long now. And he said, the person who wrote this is not, as they've been suspecting, a not so educated person like a an aircraft um, repairman, which is one of the things they thought he might be. He said, this person has a graduate degree, but not in the humanities. He was brought up in Chicago, a Catholic. How did he, how did he guess Catholic? <laughs> because he used terms like sublimation, which especially then was a way that the Catholic church was telling its uh, teenagers not to have sex, you see? Mm -hmm. And uh, so also he, he did misspellings, but they weren't real misspellings. Roger recognized them as Chicago Tribune new way of simplifying spelling, which only lasted for a certain period. When the publisher died, they went back to the normal spelling. And he also talked about rearing children, which at that time was in the dialect that we call northern cities as opposed to raising children. Okay? And he said he has lived in the West, but he's not from the West. And he knew that because in the manifesto, he said, I had gone out into the Sierra to meditate or something. And Sierra is a topographical term used in the West, but it was the only topographical term he used. See, if he was a local, he would have been using all these other terms, but somehow he had picked that up, just like I picked up now the term squad cast. So, uh, so, right. And so I remember like about the learned part, like he was using, um, words like tautology, for instance. And, uh, uh, so, so that kind of led to the theory that he was highly educated. How did he determine that he wasn't in the humanities, but he was in the sciences? Um, well, you have to remember Roger and I are, are college professors and <laughs> the, the way it was laid out and everything would not have been up to the standard of a, uh, of a humanities or social science. And indeed Kaczynski had a PhD in mathematics. Huh, fascinating. Like in the case of this, um, woman who was marrying, uh, uh, veterans and then faking their suicides yes. and presumably they would write suicide notes. You could basically use linguistic analysis to say, oh, this note is not in the patterns that are very common for this man, but it is common for this woman. Perfectly put. Yes. And I'll give you a uh, one example, uh, which was these guys are veterans. They knew military terminology. She was never in the service. So she only knew it secondhand. So she used to make a lot of mistakes. She wouldn't capitalize things that were supposed to be capitalized. She would misuse a, a term as the wrong part of speech. But the guys never would, see? Hmm. And here we have in the, uh, the suicide note all these misuses of military terms that happen to perfectly coincide with ours. And statistically, would you look at statistically how often veterans would misuse words in, you know, because veterans maybe in some cases weren't that educated, so they might misuse words. Yeah. So, well, I don't know if it's a, uh, something about education, but um, we established reference corpora of these. We, we get real world samples, just like I did in the northern dialects of Swahili in northern Kenya. Um, and we studied not only military manuals, but um, uh, social media where people 
who were in families of military would speak. So we would get a large sample of how all these different populations might use these military terms. And she was quite an outlier. And if you're an outlier and you find that outlying, you know, idiosyncrasy thing in both the document that you're analyzing and somebody's writing, that's one link that would help you look at that person. But you can't do things on the basis of one feature. You always have to have a series of features. And I've testified in this, and it's been accepted in court in in murder trials. Uh, that's how I really got into this. I was asked by the Pennsylvania State Police to analyze these two letters, a sort of threatening letter to a woman. The woman then was found strangled in her car. And then uh, another letter which said, you're looking at the wrong person. I killed her. And the police, I realized, of course, probably thought it was the same person, and they were wildly different on the surface. But I was able to show from the narrative structures and other things, and the fact that they actually did show the same level of education, etc., that they were probably written by the same person. And they actually also shared a very, very rare rhetorical device that was so rare we had to give it a name called ironic repetition. So in the first letter, it was, I would have loved to have found out. She made sure my fiance found out. And in the second letter, it was, she broke it off, so I broke her neck. Interesting. So, so these are these short letters, but they both have that rhetorical device of repetition for ironic effect and cruel humor. And that allowed the judge to give us a search warrant, and then we had all the writings of the suspect. If I was playing devil's advocate, like let's say I'm the defense attorney for this woman, I could say, well, you have a hammer, so everything's a nail. So you, you even had to make up a rhetorical device to sort of show that these letters are similar. But in fact, there's probably, probably everybody occasionally uses, you know, some degree of repetition in their letters. Very, very good. So what I did when I saw this, and I looked at it for weeks before I noticed this, uh, is I researched whether it was a common rhetorical device. I asked all the Greek and Latin professors at Hofstra, and they said, gee, no. And then I went to the Brigham Young University encyclopedia of all the rhetorical devices in the world and spoke to its curator. And I said, is this a common rhetorical device? Now, John F. Kennedy, uh, president, in his uh, first speech, he very famously said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And he was accused of having plagiarized that by all sorts of people. But that's because that was a very common rhetorical device that probably went all the way back to uh, ancient Athens. But Yeah, I this, think it's called uh, anaphora, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and there's even a Another, uh, yeah, well, anaphora, absolutely. But there's also a word. I, I'm not an expert on rhetorical devices. That's why I rely on people who are Greek and Latin professors and the keeper of the enormous thing. And he said, no, I mean, it's sort of cloche, but it isn't really. And uh, again, we were, all we needed to do was convince a judge that language evidence could come in handy. I see. And did a judge ever say, this is just like astrology, forget it? No, actually. Uh, but they sometimes say, well, the other side will always try to knock me out, right? Because 
obviously, if one side is presenting me, it's in their interest. Because if I do an analysis and I say, you don't have anything here, obviously, they don't try to present me a trial, right? So what people do say is, judge, we don't need a professional linguist. You speak English. The jury speaks English. And sometimes uh, that can make sense. But uh, one case I had about judicial uh, misconduct um, had 250,000 pages of evidence in Spanish. So nobody thinks that the jury is going to retire to the jury room and go through that. And you need really advanced scientific methods of, of analysis. And also you can argue that the average jury member is not going to know statistically how much a certain phrase is used right. by people from California. And, and you right. might have some of that knowledge based on that's right. Well, newspaper articles or whatever. Oh, no, we, we have a lot of data on how people speak in, in California and in Sri Lanka. Um, there are enormous corpora, these intentional curated databases that, um, add, that, that are compendiums of actual language used in English in all the world's countries that use English and like that. But, you know, to get back to uh, what you and I were speaking about at the outset, which was that you're from New York, but you're down in Florida. Um, and what could I tell from your language? Well, I'll give you an example. And I'll give you an example how you really have to go not by your instinct, but by databases, by corpora. Um, let's say we have a threat case uh, in California. And uh, this guy is uh, stalking this woman and the writing notes. And he says, hey, baby, when I saw you standing online in the supermarket, I knew you were the one for me. And they look around at all the possible suspects and they get samples of writing. And this one guy, he says, dear mom, I was standing online in the supermarket. And I remember how you used to make me chicken. So they said, wow, look at this. What an idiosyncrasy standing online. Who the hell says that? It must be this guy. But actually what they've done is just narrow the suspect pool down to the nine or 10 million people in the New York area, where in the supermarket we stand online. But in California, you stand in line. Hmm. See? And these are unconscious uses. So we are revealing things about ourselves all the time, which is really interesting because on the other side of the coin, there's very, very, very amazingly little information in the words we speak. Most of the information that you get when you're speaking to somebody comes from the mind of the listener, not the words. The words are triggering knowledge things called schemas in the mind of the listener. And there's good demonstrations for this I do all the time, uh, convincing a judge that there's more to language that meets the eye. And I can do it if you want, as is four sentences. Sure. John was on his way to school last Friday. He was really worried about the math lesson. What's John? Just play along now. What do you think? Uh, I would assume I'm picturing a kid who's like eight or nine years old. Right. Because that's middle America. That's right. It, perfect. That's your default schema. How's he getting to school? I, I pictured walking, but it could be by bus or walking. Perfect. Perfect. And that's what most people say, either one or the other. All right. So we've communicated. But wait a minute. 
have we communicated? Is he on the bus or is he walking or is he skydiving? I didn't say he wasn't skydiving. Also, also, John's parent is probably writing this note, not John himself. Well, now that's really insightful, man, because so much of this is theory of mind and negotiation with who the interlocutor is. John was on his way to school last Friday. He was really worried about the math lesson. Last week, he had been unable to control the class. Now what is he? Ah, he's a teacher. That's right. Now how's he going to school? Car. That's right. So I was training um, uh, officers in Denmark. And when I asked them, how's he going to school? Every single person in the class said, on his bike. See, just as you said, you're imagining that it's uh, that the, the intent of, you have to negotiate who it is you're talking to and what words are going to trigger what responses. John was on his way to school last Friday. He was really worried about the math lesson. Last week, he'd been unable to control the class. It had been unfair of the math teacher to leave him in charge. Now, what is he? Yeah, now he's a student again. Well, he could be a student. Or it could be a substitute teacher or it could be an assistant yeah, or a teacher. TA or something. Right. Yeah. So I've done a lot of research with this and asked people. And uh, one, one person said to me, you know, I've never had a substitute teacher who couldn't control a class, but I know it's a thing. So I'm assuming that the person who wrote that intended for me to think it was a substitute teacher because I know it's a thing that they can't control the class. So where's all this information coming from? Not in the words. It's in the interpretation of the words. It's in the schemas, these knowledge bases. After all, it's not a normal part of a janitor's duties. This is from a book on how we get meaning from reading. Great book. I have two more devil's advocate questions. So one is, what's the difference between coincidence and statistical accuracy? So in the example where I was standing online in one letter and I was standing online in the other letter, and this comes from a pool of people who might be suspects. Now, people always say, oh my gosh, I ran into somebody from my childhood. What a coincidence. Yeah. And yet we know coincidences, some coincidences are not only possible, but it's almost impossible to not have coincidences in life because there's so many possible coincidences. Any one specific coincidence is, is odd. That's right. But you're going to have coincidences out of the billions of possible coincidences you could have. You're going to have coincidences every day, perhaps. And so uh, it might be a coincidence. My favorite show is Shauna Na, and now I'm talking to you. <laughs> so in, in, in this case, uh, the stand online, how do you know it's not just coincidence that, you know, people do this? That's really an uh, excellent, excellent question. The answer to which will unwrap a whole bunch of other stuff. So as I had said before, you never go on one feature. That was bad procedure anyway, because maybe the guy had a girlfriend who was from New York. So he started saying online. Right. So and um, my colleague at Hofstra, um, Dr. Tammy Gales, she told me that when she came back from uh, Greece, where she had been working, she was using English that her mother said, wait, that doesn't make sense. And then she realized that she had borrowed those constructions from Greek even though she's a native speaker of English, and then went back. So it's certainly possible that somebody could pick up something like that. So there's a couple of things. You never go by one feature. There's always a constellation of features. And what we are actually doing is excluding candidates, very much like 
the people at the Human Genome Project explained to me DNA does. DNA, they told me, actually excludes people. And maybe you've excluded so many people that there are very few suspects left. But that's what we do. For example, I testified in a trial where a guy was accused of having sent himself death threats and uh, death threats about his employer and his family for months and months and then strangled his wife and two little boys to free himself so he could be with his new girlfriend. Hmm. And I analyzed his known writings and I analyzed these threat letters. And there were a number of consistencies between the two. But in my report, I said, as I always do, I said that, that the superior hypothesis is that, and you put it almost exactly the same way I do, that the linguistic features in the questioned document can be best explained as instances of those features that we find in the known documents. No matter how strong that is, this does not necessarily mean that this person wrote those letters. That has to be decided by the trier of fact, which is a judge or a jury, judge in a bench trial, based on mean on all the forensic evidence, all the other evidence, and means, motive, and opportunity. So it is not the case that everybody who you know was in uh, Chicago at that moment are actually viable suspects. There is always a suspect pool. This guy, and then it turned out one of those letters had been written on his work computer. But so we cannot identify one particular person in the world. And I always say that to investigators that DEA wanted me, they wanted to know if I could testify in this one case I won't get into. Uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, it was this person. I said, no, I've told you that before. And they said, yeah, we thought that too. Maybe he has a twin brother who sits there at the computer with him and, and, and writes also. It's almost never the case that it's that wide open. You have a shrinking pool of people, and then you have a series of commonalities, and especially when they're unconscious. So the smaller the pool of people, the less likely it is that certain co coincidences would happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the classic case is uh, uh, there's two people, and one of them commits suicide, and you know, in a closed room, like some Sherlock Holmes movie, I mean, a uh, book or something, and who wrote it, the, the person who died or the other person. Now we have quite a closed set, you see, because the exigencies of the actual situation say that there are only two viable candidates. Okay, so if I'm the defense attorney and, and you're saying to me, look, it looks like the person, the, let's say it was the man didn't commit suicide and write the suicide note, it looks like his wife committed this, uh, 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 wrote the suicide note because it compares uh, statistically in some, in many ways with her writing styles. But what if I'm the guy who killed himself and I want to set up my wife and I study maybe her linguistic patterns and I write the, my suicide note as if I were her. So she would become a suspect if this became a murder trial. How do you determine if someone's not, not either dumbing down or smartening up the, the letter? So uh, another very good question. And uh, the answer is, you know, as, as I'll be doing training for police and intelligence agents and everything, 
and lay people, they say, oh, boy, these guys were pretty stupid. I mean, they tried to dumb down, but they didn't do a good job. Uh, all, all criminals are stupid. I said, no, no, these are only the ones we catch. Maybe somebody does it really, really well, you see. But a classic case of this was a, um, a ransom note. And this was another case of uh, Dr. Shai's where um, the note misspelled daughter, misspelled uh, all the uh, cops, trash can was spelled with a K and stuff. But all sorts of other things were spelled correctly. And even more importantly, all the punctuation was perfect. And it belied the, the dumbing down of the person, see? So we can catch people very well because they don't dumb down. It's much easier to dumb down than dumb up, smarten up, dumb down the same level. So if you can't spell trash can, can you actually do perfect punctuation in a uh, hundred word note? Not bloody likely. See what I mean? Well, do you have statistics on that? Like, are there studies of, okay, if some, if someone's of a certain education level, this is how they do grammar. This is how they do spelling. This is how they do this. And it's, it's statistical. Well, you're using statistical as if it were a magic wand and I, I get it, but, um, the past many, many decades of sociolinguistic variation, which comes out of dialect studies. Let's look at this. I guess statistically or any other way, it would be very easy to prove that Cal, not Californians, because there are half of them are New Yorkers, but uh, um, Eastern Tennessee speakers speak different than Western Tennessee speakers. And the way we would do that is we would collect, as many, many dialecticians have, actual samples of real speech and then compare them. So there would be a long, long list of differences that we could rely on. A lot of people say, I didn't write that. And then people say, well, it came from your phone, from your email account. Well, my email must have been hacked yeah. and someone sent out this letter. So that's a common defense that people use like for all sorts of things. That's what that guy who got convicted of strangling his wife and little boys said, that somebody had hacked into his computer, but somebody would have had to be able to turn on the power, send it, and then turn off the power, which is rather difficult. And, and can you also tell linguistically, oh, but he writes, whoever hacked into your computer happens to write in, in all the ways that East Tennesseans write yeah. and you write. That's right. And here's the 50 ways that are similar to yours that are not necessarily similar to other people. That's right. But it's also theoretically possible that somebody could do a really good job. So uh, very often when death threats are public, we have to really watch out for copycats and then whose underlying architecture is going to be different than the person who actually wrote it. And then when we get suspects, we want to be comparing the suspect's language to the genuine uh, threats. And that's the, the complications in the real world of this forensic linguistics. Forensic linguistics is the most applied of all uh, well, it's the, it's the, the, the most real world application of 
theoretical linguistic science. And and so now let's get to specific cases. Like, you know, obviously one of the most famous cases in history is John Benet Ramsey. How did you get involved in that case? What did you do for them? Yeah. Well, at the outset, I was probably one of the few forensic linguists in the world who was not involved uh, when the poor girl was killed. But then uh, later, a guy named John Carr, uh, an American, surfaced in Thailand and announced that he had been there when John Benet died and maybe was the killer and that he was in love with her and he loved little girls and stuff like that. So um, he was able to get airlifted by the Boulder District Attorney out of Thailand, where I am told he was in a lot of hot water, um, and brought to Colorado. And I was hired, this time by a newspaper, to compare his writings and this corpus of uh, emails, that is, his writings were in a corpus of emails he had had with some professor who was the big expert on John Benet Ramsey. And then I was supposed to compare these, once I had analyzed them, to the ransom note. And I said, uh, there's not a lot of data here, but, um, and the, the odds are he absolutely didn't write. Because there are all these things that he does all the time that we do not find in the ransom note. Plus, there are perfect opportunities for it, you see? So, uh, because they're a very, very close genre, when they're different genres, all sorts of things go haywire too. But his emails to the professor and the ransom note were very close in genre and et cetera. And yet there were all these features that should have matched that didn't. So uh, the newspaper said, please, couldn't you say maybe? I said, no, <laughs> what do you want from me? And every day on Good Morning America, there was a handwriting expert who said, I'll stake my reputation, John Carr or whatever his name was, wrote the ransom note. And then the DNA evidence finally came back, no match. He had nothing to do with it. And people in the intelligence community tell me that he was just trying to get out of Thailand. So could you take the ransom note, though, and and compare it with all the other suspects and, and maybe investigate that way? Like, was sure. it, how did they do that? Oh, yeah. And, and they didn't really have any results? Well... It is a lot of results. And um, my old FBI partner, a guy who brought me to Quantico uh, to help him train his, uh, his agents in the behavioral analysis unit, uh, Jim Fitzgerald. Uh, Jim was the FBI agent who demonstrated to the FBI the utility, the usefulness of forensic linguistics in the Unibom case, which is a whole long story. But... Um, and there's a good um, uh, TV show on it uh, called Manhunt Unabomber, which is uh, fictionalized, but the main character's named Jim Fitzgerald, and a lot of it is uh, real. So anyway, Jim was having these week-long um, boot camps for behavioral analysis unit, uh, other FBI agents, uh, all sorts of people from overseas, allies, and he recruited me to go help him teach that. And when he retired, we moved that to Hofstra. Uh, and uh, from then till right now, we have both in the fall and the spring, these intensive forensic linguistics, week-long classes all day, every day for a week. I teach them with uh, Jim. And I teach with uh, Tanya Christensen, the fabulous uh, forensic linguist from Denmark, who, who 
it works on all sorts of European cases. So um, Jim analyzed the uh, John A. Ramsey uh, letter and noted that there were real world links that linked it to the Ramseys. Well, number one, there was a uh, crumpled up uh, first draft in the garbage can and the trash can. Now, you know, uh, yeah. But also there were allusions to movies. So don't try to grow a brain, John. That's from a movie that they had apparently just rented or had rented in the recent past. Um, if you do this, she dies. If you do that, she dies. If you do this, she dies. And that's also from another movie that they had rented. And this is why I'm saying when you use language, you are leaving a trail of breadcrumbs to who, what movies you've seen, what sports you watch, where you're from, who your friends are, etc. So on the basis of that, Jim concluded, and I want to speak for him, but that it was uh, probably Mrs. Ramsey who wrote it. And But it doesn't necessarily mean she was the killer, but maybe she was just trying to get evidence away from her. Yeah, well, uh, there's uh, there was a television show that uh, looked at all of the evidence and tried to recreate the place, and uh, and they had hypothesized that it was John Bonet's, um brother, uh, who mm-hmm. another little kid, uh, who was probably killed her by accident and was jealous of her. And you know, she was a beauty queen, and I mean, just such a terrible, heartbreaking uh, yeah. thing. And I have no idea who killed anybody. And that's something that I really fight all the time. It's very hard for us to make believe we're like the forensic chemist in the basement who doesn't know the case because we really have to know a lot about the case to be able to identify whether something is a clue or not. In the first case that I worked on, the fact that somebody used the term PC, and this was in 2006, led me to believe it was somebody who was very familiar with computers. And then it turned out that the main suspect uh, was uh, a computer specialist for the uh, state police of all things. What's the story of the Tennessee Facebook murders? Um, It's just so horrible. Um, One day, this couple in East Tennessee are found by a guy I think supposed to be getting his mail or giving a lift to the man and finds uh, a young man and woman both shot to death, man's throat slit, and the woman is holding their, I think, 20-month-old baby. He's unharmed. And now an investigation happens into a little town in eastern Tennessee. And the district attorney and his investigators in the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation start piecing together who might have had a motive or etc. And they finally zero in on this family who were having Facebook feuds. And that the press loved, you know, Facebook murders. It was because uh, they defriended them on Facebook. Obviously, there was a lot of reason that they defriended them and they just didn't want to deal with them anymore. 
And it came to light that the there was a, a 30-year-old woman and her mom and her dad and her sort of boyfriend. And the dad was interpreting these things that he was reading on their Facebook pages as that his family was in danger from these from this young couple. And he had been in Vietnam and he always alluded to being a killer for the CIA. And actually when they arrested him, I think there was something like 150 guns in his house. Um, and he recruited the sort of boyfriend when they went over in the middle of the night and shot and slashed the couple. So the, I come into the picture when they're trying to piece together where all this information comes from. And, uh, it turns out to make a very, very long, terrible story short, the young woman and her mom were inventing all these dangers for themselves. And they had invented a CIA agent named Chris, who was sanctioning, approving the killing. And of course, people didn't stop to think, why would a CIA agent communicate to these men via this young woman's Facebook page? But that's what happens. Uh, people believe what they want to believe. And she and her mom put the two men up to the killings. And I was able to show that the Chris writings were from the mom and the daughter. It's a very, wow. very terrible case. So now all these years later, it's like almost 50 years later, do you think you made the right decision? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the group's still going. Uh, two of the original guys and three guys that I've played with are still in the group, and they, they do gigs all the time. It's funny. When we started, uh, a detractor said, ah, they'll be gone in a couple of weeks. So 50 years later, the group is still going. And, God, we had success. I mean, I played with every big 50s musician, Chuck Berry, and we, we played – we were really avant-garde, you have to understand. As I was saying before, I have this great handbill, a Detroit show with B.B. King, Little Richard, and us. Isn't that great? It's just fabulous, yeah. just fabulous. And played with all the biggest rock stars of the day and the dead and you name it. Ah, it was a great experience to have had. And going to Africa, which we didn't even talk about, was also a fabulous experience that terrified me. I couldn't find out anything about the place that I was supposed to go to, a little island off the coast of Kenya, almost by the Somali border. I couldn't find out if there was electricity, if there was stores, nothing. And that was where I was supposed to be for a year. But I just, okay, and my father said, get going. Uh, I would have loved to be able to travel around the world when I was your age. So I don't want to hear it. And I said, you're right. You're right. I mean, I was terrified. And I packed up and I went there for a year. And altogether, I stayed there, oh, I don't know, for six years. Best place in the world. The most fun in the world. Uh, well, and what, what did you study time. there? Like, what did you learn about forensic linguistics there? Well, I learned a lot about language. You know, at Columbia, we always said, if, you, if we were urban sociologists, we wouldn't all study Detroit, right? People would study London and New York. 
So at Columbia, we had to specialize in the language. So some guys got French, somebody had Chinese, English. And because of Shanana, I took Swahili. Out of 55 languages taught at Columbia, they were all taught Monday through Friday, except for Swahili. And when I was in the group, I would barely get back on Tuesday, you see. So I took Swahili, and the, and the, the day I walked in there, I couldn't have found Africa on a map. That's how little I knew about it. And I love telling my students that. And I fell madly in love with it. Swahili, like a lot of Bantu languages, is incredibly complicated. There are 18 noun classes, otherwise known as genders. It's the equivalent of Spanish or French having 18 genders. And everything has to agree. Three of these genders have to do with different aspects of space and time. So for a guy who loves languages, I fell madly in love. So I so specialized that, in it. What does that mean, a, a gender that has to do with space and time? Like, what's sure. an example? Um, well, just to back up a sec, realize that gender in Spanish and French actually happens by accident almost, that if you're a man, you get the masculine, and if you're a woman, you get the feminine, but there's also neuter and German and all. And what makes a table feminine? It's la mesa in Spanish, but le table in French, it's masculine, because there's no masculine, it's just a way of keeping track of things, okay? So Bantu languages do this up like mad. So the, the three noun classes, the three genders that have to do with space and time deal, roughly speaking, and my colleague that I took Swahili with and uh, through PhD in, at Columbia, uh, she has devoted many years to understanding this. But in general, at least the way when we teach it, to simplify it, we say one of these has to do with general space, one has to do with more specific space, and is very often used for time. And then the third has to do with insideness, but really with borderness. So that's the semantic content that's being uh, signaled, and then based on the context, it's being understood in all sorts of, of really interesting ways. Well, it's so interesting. So how do you say hello in Swahili? Habari. It's a good, easy way. Uh, and that's, for, they borrowed from Arabic, the word for uh, news. So habari, mzuri. If you're in Kenya and if you're in Tanzania, mzuri. <laughs> and then there's yambo greetings where you say, yambo, and you're supposed to say, si yambo, and on like that. And people love to greet people there. Um, I, I lived uh, uh, overlooking this square, and I would have to get my mail uh, out of my post box. And it was maybe 100 feet. And it could take me 20 minutes because everybody you meet, you have to say hello and ask how they are and how's their kids and how was their last safari. And, uh, and, but it was wonderful. It was really wonderful, unless you were in a hurry. Well... Robert Leonard, you have such an amazing story and background from Shanana to solving murders and and really achieving the top ranks of success in, in both very disparate fields. Uh, I read that uh, Time Magazine had listed you as, as number two of the world's smartest musicians, and it's it, it was certainly true. I, I don't know who number one was, but... Uh, he was the uh, guitarist for Queen. And that's because he's an astrophysicist. I think I'm going to sue. <laughs> I like how, I don't know when that article was written. Hold on a second. I like how you instantly knew 
who your competitor was. It was written in 2012, so yeah. 11 years ago. And, and you know, what, why? So he's an astrophysicist. I guess people think, oh, it's not rocket science. That's always exactly. kind of a metaphor for intelligence. They have a great brand, uh, astrophysicists, you know. I mean, and it's, it's a great field, too. And he was an astrophysicist yeah. as he was the uh, in Queens, just like when I was in school in Shanana. It's fun. It's amazing. Well, Robert, thank you so much for coming on the show. And maybe you'll find a third field now. <laughs> well, thank you. If you are any uh, indication, uh, I mean, uh, I should try to become an interviewer. You, this was fabulous. I mean, I've been interviewed 8 million times, man. But this has been so insightful and so organized. And, and I'm not just saying that. I really have a, a lot of authentic data with which to compare it. I think you do a fabulous job. I listened to some of your podcasts and they're just great. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I I get really curious. Yeah. And my the problem is, is that I tend to interrupt because I, I make you stop and I'm like, wait, explain that. But I do get very curious and- um, And you know your audience. It's, it's just like when we use language, it's theory of mind. You know how things are going to be heard by your audience, as large as it is, because you have great experience in how they react. Well, and what's interesting with this interview, and, and this is part of the podcast still, but what's interesting with, with this interview is a lot of times I interview people um, when they write a book, say, and they want to market their book. And I understand that. And the if the book's interesting, I'll, I'll interview them and talk to them. But lately, I've been leaning more towards interviewing people who themselves are the story as opposed to they wrote the story. So you are an amazing story, and I loved hearing your your stories, and it's it's very well, unique. Wait, I have a and... book. Oh, <laughs> tell me the book. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll mark at the book. Well, my brother, who, as I say, you know, started Shanana, and uh, he's also a, an excellent art scholar, but he um, wrote fabulous novels, all of which got picked up, uh, and he wrote the screenplays. No movie was ever made out of him, but he's just a fabulous writer. He and I. I've been working for years and years now on a book that's very much like a John le Carré novel, but about the United States. And it's 1,300 pages. And we wow. actually just finished it last week. That's why it was in my mind. And it is just love, death, courage, heartbreak, and centered around the intelligence world that I know something about and centered around forensic linguistics as the key to the enigmas in the book. And uh, yet it's a romance. And there are two heroines. There's a 30-year-old uh, woman, a lawyer in New York, and a 14-year-old orphan out west. And they come together, and there's bombings, and you name it. But at, at heart, it's, it's a romance. It's about these two women. And do you think you'll you'll get it published? Yeah, I uh, well uh, maybe not as one uh, thirteen hundred page um, book, but there's around forty chapters that would make. I think. I mean, what with Netflix needing cliffhangers and endless, and we we just loved Breaking Bad, and that was a great model uh, for us uh, to reorganize the novel. Because it is like, I don't know, three times as long as War and Peace. But each of the chapters stands uh, on, on 
its own. So the special talent here uh, that is on is revealed is the forensic linguistic that we've been talking about. And yeah, that would create a great series, actually, yep. uh, uh, like a James Patterson style series, you know, where the forensic linguist is like the Jack Reacher of the series. Well, I have I have a book contract with Oxford University Press. I'm supposed to write a uh, a book about forensic linguistics for popular people, and that's only five years late. Um, and uh, I had had a um, contract with uh, the agent who had the um, Hunger Games books uh, to write a young adult series on forensic linguistics, and that didn't work. But uh, we're we're all back together again now, and we're hoping that this uh, will be. It's only taken us years and years, I must say. So I need well, I needed a good agent, a good publisher, and uh, we'll go to my brother's people, I guess. Yeah, and you know, there's nothing wrong with self-publishing. You know, books like Fifty Shades of Grey originally were self-published. God help me. <laughs> <laughs> and did your brother write? Um, uh, there's somebody else on the moon. I'm looking at Amazon. No, I don't think so. I mean, there's another George Leonard, who is a self-help guy. Who, yeah, yeah, I see one called Mastery by another George Leonard, and then there's a George Leonard who's a doctor. Yeah, so not, it's probably not that. Not one. not that either. Um, but I mean, he gets reviews from the New York Times and the L.A. Times, and everybody that just they cannot believe what a good writer he is. And what, what's some of it? What's <laughs> one of his books? Beyond Control um, is one, and. Uh, That's funny. So many, so many soft porn books are named Beyond Control. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, uh, Beyond Control by George Leonard. Right. I'm buying it right now. Okay, so really good. So, book. Oh, it's it's uh, 125 dollars for the hardcover, so I'm going to buy it in the paperback. <laughs> I'll send you one, man. Matter of fact, I'll send you a copy of all of them. All right, excellent. Well, once again, uh, Rob Leonard, Shanana, and forensic linguist. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome back anytime. I really appreciate it. I'd love to, man. I love it. It's great talking to you. Thanks so much. Take care. 